Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day to wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio 4, Friday, July 27, 2012. This week, episode 253 comes to you from Studio D in beautiful Central City, Pennsylvania, at the IAQ Training Institute World Headquarters. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio is Roxy V, Val Bender. Hello, Joe. Hello, Val. Joining us back from Studio C is Cliff Zlotnick, the Z-Man. Hey, Joe, not only did the roles change, the location changed. <laughs> yeah, we're, I tell you, what, I didn't know if we'd make it, Cliff, but we did it. Um, joining us later in the show will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wild. Today's segments include the IAQ radio trivia question, an interview with Mr. Cole Stanton of Fiberlock and Tim Rowley of Crime and Death Scene Cleaning, Inc. We'll have our halftime, then we'll go to the roundup. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. <laughs> that was a little, little, slow on the, little slow on the button. Oh, no clip. We'll come back to that. All right, let's get back. we got to get started anyway because Cole has to run today. Hey, uh, we'll get back to the marquee sponsors in a minute. To listen live, of course, you just follow the link um, at the IAQ Radio website to go to show or, of course, follow the link on your invitation. We have renewal credits available. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And uh, last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. You got those clip? You got that clip? Let's do our sponsors. Net claims now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. 
John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanclenfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for this week's IEQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. Yay! No Guest six for being the first person to provide material safety data sheet, safety data sheet, or product safety data sheet as the answer to last week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. The IAQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, July 27, 2012, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restores and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their new electronic membership category at www.trsca.org. Now for this week's trivia question. Name the five general stages used to describe the process of human decomposition. Back to you, Joe. Good one, Cliff. All right, let's start with our first guest this week, which is Cole Stanton. Cole is the Executive Vice President of Fiberlock Technologies, Inc. of Andover, Massachusetts. He's worked with policymakers, regulators, consultants, and contractors, and is involved on a daily basis with blending work practice standards and economic considerations into real-world asbestos, abatement, mold remediation, disaster response, and lead-based paint abatement projects. He travels throughout North America to examine proposed projects, educate contractors and property owners, and advise on specifications for encapsulating or removing and cleaning these environmentally hazardous materials. In almost 17 years with FiberLock, he served first as the compliance and technical sales manager, and now in his current capacity, he specializes in the development of work practice regulations and standards at the federal, state, and local level. He has been involved with standard writing with the IICRC. He's currently working with the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization. He has also worked with ASTM in the past and with some federal agencies as well. I think we have a little uh, music for Cole. Here we have poor dead Caitlin. Her body is cooled and taken on a pale ashen complexion, although you can't really tell because I always look like that. 
she may be dead, but inside her corpse there are trillions of living microscopic organisms chomping away at the body's tissues. Those little organisms are producing gas, which causes greenish bloat, putrefaction. Tissues begin to liquefy and the skin blackens. Since she's outside in the leaves, bugs are coming from the soil too, and maggots. Oh, how there shall be maggots. Oh, the joy of death scene cleanup. All right. Thanks, Cliff, for that clip. Uh, let's see if we've got Cole on the line. Hello, Cole. Oh, we have to unmute Cole. Guess two. Good hey, night. Joe. Hey, Cliff. Hey. Welcome Thanks for back. joining us. Oh, it's great to be on the show. Great to have you. We're waiting for our next guest to show up too, Cole. But uh, you know what? We've got you for at least the first half here, and then I know Cliff and I can make it run from there. And Dieter, um, a couple weeks back, we had a show with Dan Stratford from NADCA. We talked about the position paper on the use of chemicals in HVAC systems. And I know you were a part of writing that, and I want, what we'd like to do to start out with is get your thoughts on what the importance of that document is. Well, you know, it was a privilege to serve and, and help write that paper, and it's, I think, immensely important. There has been an extraordinarily confused environment out there in terms of the use of chemicals and coatings in the HVAC environment. And to have NADCA come out with a paper that had EPA's involvement, and I have to give Tracy Lance a lot of credit for her participation because it's a tough room, uh, so to speak, figuratively, in terms of the group that helped write it. Uh, to have their involvement and to have NADCA's imprimatur on it uh, is powerful. And you know, there are a couple things that are really, really important. To finally have something that very clearly states that at this time the EPA has not accepted any disinfectant, sanitizer, or fungicidal product for use in the ductwork of HVAC systems is important. And following on that, to have uh, further clarification that there are EPA-registered products for some other use sites in our air handling systems. Uh, and then the third thing, it's, it's just immensely valuable to have a document that, you know, I think for the first time really clearly discusses uh, the use of coatings uh, and different types of coatings uh, in the HVAC system. You know, coatings inside our HVAC systems are ever more popular and more widely used uh, today than, say, 10 years ago, a lot by a, a tremendous factor. So, I mean, those are three areas uh, amongst others where the paper is really, really, I think, going to be proved to be very valuable to the whole industry. Cole, maybe you could clarify for me, and I didn't have time to ask Dan, which is why this is great as a follow-up. I understand there aren't any products registered for disinfecting, sanitizing the, the ductwork, but there are products you can use in the ductwork, but what do you call it when you do that? I mean, if there are products that are able to be used. Well, sure. Uh, you know, we can make cleaning, uh, we, we can provide cleaning, you know, in the ductwork environment. Uh, it's just that EPA hasn't accepted anything with a kill claim. Uh, you'll note in the paper, as the paper goes on, there's a discussion of soaps and detergents. There's a discussion of uh, degreasers. And in those sections, uh, the paper finally provides language that's 
easily understandable by everyone. Um, for example, it says, soaps and detergents are generally not required to be registered by the EPA unless pesticidal claims are made. Uh, we have deodorizers as well. That's another category uh, that the paper uh, addresses. So the value in the paper of spelling out the considerations of a product that has a kill claim, a disinfection or sanitizing claim, uh, versus products that don't and therefore do not need to be EPA registered. That's, that's where the paper is doing a tremendous service uh, to the industry. Cliff, did you have anything you wanted to add? Um, no, not really. Okay, let me, let me follow up again on that, Cole. Now, so, you know, there are products used for disinfecting in, in, in the water damage business, in the mold remediation business. So should you not use those at all in the ductwork? The NADCA paper also is clear that if a product that is EPA registered is to be used in our air handling systems, then it must have specific directions for use in the HVAC environment. Uh, so an EPA registered coil cleaner, and those are out there, would have specific directions for coil cleaning. Uh, if you had metal ductwork, which is a unlined, hard, non-porous surface, then in the past, there was a possibility that someone might misinterpret taking a disinfectant, which is EPA registered for a hard, non-porous surface, and using it on that metal ductwork. The ductwork use site, that environment, is specific unto itself. So if we're going to use a product that is an EPA registered product in ductwork, then it must be, or I should say in our air handling systems, then it has to have specific language for those applications, drip pans, coils, for example. And there's never been any registered that used that language for in hard ductwork, for instance. Well, things changed in 2002, okay. uh, and uh, NADCA's DuckTales article is a must-read for someone who's and that's from a few years ago now, a must-read for people who are interested in this topic. Uh, there was a clarification uh, from EPA that the HVAC use site is unique, and it is uh, to be considered on its own as a different site. Just because a product has a standard disinfection claim for hard and porous surfaces doesn't mean it can be used in metal ductwork or, for that matter, a sanitizing claim for semi-porous materials on line ductwork. Fascinating stuff. Well, I, I guess, Cole, you know, as a product manufacturer, would you agree that the ductwork – would you agree or disagree that the duct environment is unique? Oh, I would agree that the Why? duct environment is unique. Why? Well, I think whenever we're talking about our – air handling systems. You know, we're talking about delivering breathable air to the indoor environment. Uh, having Treating that a little differently is appropriate. Uh, now, I think there's still mountains of work to be done. Uh, I think we're, there needs to be greater clarification. There needs to be uh, more from EPA, and hopefully their participation in this paper uh, is the start of a process where we'll get 
better guidance and more specific label instructions, and we'll see uh, products down the line that are registered uh, for ductwork. But you know, j just in general, um, calling it a hard non-porous surface because it's metal ductwork, that doesn't I take into account that our breathable air is a is a precious commodity, and you know so we should treat our treat those systems with uh, greater care and respect. I, I guess I disagree with you. You know, I, I think that the EPA's response was really a knee jerk reaction, and and I'll explain why. Uh, if you treated an uh, an air handling system with an antimicrobial product, uh, there's really not a lot of surface area there. You know, would you agree the amount of square footage of duct passage that goes through a room is small compared to the amount of surface area that you have in the room. And I've always contended that if you mop the floor with a cleaner disinfectant, as is a pretty common practice in schools, you know, let's say it's it's just a classroom, the exposure is greater to people in that room from mopping the floor, from cleaning the desks, from cleaning the materials in that room with a cleaner and disinfectant than it is uh, if it's delivered you know, through the HVAC system. And, you know, just personally, I just think that the EPA just had a knee-jerk reaction, overreacted, and, you know, the kind of the industry kind of didn't have a, much choice but to bend over and, you know, kind of cooperate with them. But You make a great point. You know, certainly... For the vast majority of people, there's no dermal exposure, you know, with the ductwork. All right. Go well, on. I'm not ticking on you. Go ahead. Well, well, you know, I don't think we'll, we'll uh, solve that one today, but it's interesting. It's an interesting topic because I see these claims all the time of sanitizing and disinfecting ductwork, and it kind of drives you crazy. But let's move on from that and uh, – I'd like to talk for a moment about the IICRC Standard and Reference Guide for Professional Mold Remediation. I know, Cole, you were involved with the revision in 2000, I want to say 2008, but it might have been 2005. I don't remember off the top of my head. Well, it took four years and eight months for a revision that uh, I remember from our first meeting, uh, everyone said the goal was to do it in three months. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Joe, you're right uh, with both of those dates in, in a sense. But it was finalized in 08, I guess, 2008. Correct. And then you also, I don't know if you were part of writing the first one. I think that was 2002, but were you on that committee? I was not part of the first one. No, I joined for the second one, and I will be participating in the next round, which is scheduled to start sometime late this year. All right, let's start with the difference between 2002 and 2008. Can you give us, from your perspective, what's changed, what changed between those two, and what your thoughts are on, on those changes? I assume you're asking specifically in regards to chemicals yes. and coatings. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry, yes. I, I, my opinion, and I'm certainly uh, biased, uh, but... I think it's inarguable that vast improvements were made in regards to uh, the treatment of uh, considerations a remediator should take into account when it comes to the use of disinfectants and sanitizers and coatings. Uh, some changes were very fundamental and simple. Uh, for example, if you read the uh, structural chapter 
uh, in the uh, 2003, I believe, document. Uh, the uses of uh, cleaners and sanitizers and coatings are also run together that it's hard to distinguish uh, what the document's actually saying about one type of product versus another. Uh, the Probably the most valuable section for people who are interested in uh, the differing uses of uh, chemicals, biocides, and antimicrobials can be found uh, starting on page 117 and running through 122, uh, where the different types of products are, are split out and each treated in their own regard, which provides some valuable clarification. Uh, the other thing you know, that's fundamental is there was a lot of remediator participation in the document that eventually came out in 2008. And sitting in the meetings and listening to the remediators, if there was one consensus on this subject amongst them, it was don't take tools out of our toolbox. Allow us in following this standard of care, to use our professional judgment as to when these types of products would be valuable. And they're not going to be used on every mold remediation project, but they want those tools. So, for example, whereas the first edition might have had a statement saying, biocide application is discouraged, the 2008 document reads, indiscriminate biocide application is discouraged. Uh, the fundamental principle of source removal is still the guiding aim of the S520 document. But it's valuable to the industry in the revision to have the revision state that sometimes these products are useful and complementary tools. And that's a, a phrase uh, coming from, I think, page 17, 117. You, you know, Cliff had a question here, and I'd like to follow up. It was, you know, he wanted a little discussion of the different types of coatings available. And we can pull back into the HVAC and discuss both HVAC and microbial remediation. And when you and I talked the other day, Cole, you, you were doing a, a really nice job of first describing for me the difference between the, the types of coatings available with respect to the added uh, biocidal or fungicidal actions. Can you go over that for our listeners? Absolutely. The 2008 S520 uh, separated out the fungicidal coatings uh, from mold-resistant coatings. And the fungicidal coatings are coatings which have been registered with the EPA because they have performance to kill residual mold left behind after pre-cleaning. Whereas mold-resistant coatings do not make that fungicidal claim, are therefore not EPA registered, and are designed to lock down residual particulate to provide a surface that is resistant to future mold growth. Now, the fungicidal coatings also perform those functions. Uh, it's just at the time of application, the coating will kill residual mold that may have escaped the cleaning and or disinfecting sanitizing process. 
I'll add to that uh, S520 and the NADCA paper uh, provide valuable guidance for coatings used in the HVAC system uh, in terms of pointing out that those coatings should be tested uh, to the requirements of the NFPA 9890B protocol. So there's an additional uh, performance requirement or additional uh, test requirement for uh, mold-resistant coatings that are used uh, in the HVAC system. And that's for fire protection and National Fire Protection Association, right? Yeah, NFPA 9890B is uh, pretty simple when you boil it down. It's testing to the ASTM C411, which is a superheated air test to see if the coating deteriorates, and ASTM E84, which is the protocol to establish uh, minimal, that the, the, in a case of a fire, there's a minimal uh, flame spread contribution or smoke development from the uh, combustion of the coating. Okay. And these are separate from products that just have a, a chemical in them to resist, to keep the paint itself from getting moldy. Is that correct? Well, HVAC sealants can also have, I mean, there's no uh, prohibition to incorporating an EPA-registered active ingredient to deter future fungal activity on or in the coating film used in the HVAC system. And that uh, so that is available, and that's a feature and a, and a benefit uh, that many products out there have. Um, and the you know, ASTM, or I shouldn't say the ASTM, the S520 document uh, talks about, I'm just looking for a quote for you right here, talks about product efficacy in regards to coatings uh, and denotes that there are uh, ASTM methods uh, G21 and D3273, where a manufacturer can test to those ASTM methods and demonstrate that the product will resist fungal growth moving forward. Okay. Now, I I know you've got to run, and unfortunately, I don't see our our other guest on the line yet. So, well, I, sure. I can stick around actually a, a little longer if you'd like, Joe. Oh, that'd be great, Cole. Because this is we're we're far from done with this, and and I know you. You're also familiar with the other topic we want to cover today, which is more of your you know, crime scene and best scene cleanup. So uh, what I'd like to do then is continue along this line, but move over to the IICRC S500, which is the professional water damage standard. Now, you know what? Before I do that, Cliff had a really good question in here with respect to mold remediation, and that's uh, a comment on the use of hydrogen peroxide-based products for mold remediation. They seem to be really popular these days with the remediation contractors I talk to, and I wonder if you could uh, comment on the different types of peroxide-based products available out there and then what your thoughts are. Absolutely. Um, this has been a, a favorite uh, subject of mine for the last uh, year or so since uh, we introduced uh, our product. Uh, and it's fascinating. You know, hydrogen peroxide is attractive for many reasons. Uh, hydrogen peroxide as an active ingredient uh, works because in contact with uh, organic materials, a decomposition reaction, it's an exothermic reaction, begins. And the yield from that reaction, uh, in addition to a little bit of heat, is uh, water, and oxygen gas, water and, water and air, to put it in a very general sense. So the environmental profile of hydrogen peroxide as an active ingredient is, is attractive. 
in terms of familiarity. Um, you know, a vast number of us have those brown bottles in our medicine cabinet at home. Uh, so it's hydrogen peroxide in general is not exotic. It's something we're familiar with um, and comfortable with. Uh, in the restoration trades, and I don't want to limit this just to mold at all because there's a value to hydrogen peroxide-based uh, cleaning technologies in crime trauma scene, in water damage restoration, in disaster response, and, of course, mold. The labor savings that the right kind of hydrogen peroxide product can contribute uh, can be substantial. You know, as the product goes through that decomposition reaction, the gas that is generated, the oxygen, and the bubbling effect, is a, it's an effervescence that can get into contaminant and lift it such that we can reduce the amount of uh, scrubbing, scouring, scraping, sanding. And hydrogen peroxide, of course, also offers the other uh, feature or another performance attribute, which as an oxidizer, it can be a terrific tool uh, for mitigating staining and discoloration. Uh, now, in terms of what's been out there, uh, there has been uh, products that have a very low concentration of hydrogen peroxide and don't yield a tremendous amount of effervescence and therefore don't offer much in terms of labor savings. On the other end of the spectrum, there have been some very highly concentrated products, uh, typically stabilized with acid to keep the hydrogen peroxide from prematurely decomposing in the container. Uh, and those products provided a tremendous amount of labor savings from the effervescence of the product, but were very hazardous to use. Uh, it was a, a brute force method of cleaning and stain mitigation uh, that came with a lot of associated downsides in terms of skin discoloration, hair discoloration that was in some cases permanent. Um, the corrosive acid component of the product uh, would do damage to metallic surfaces, a lot of heat generation, sometimes over 200 degrees for some of these products. So while the pro hydrogen peroxide products were of tremendous interest in terms of labor savings, um, they were very difficult. Uh, they weren't worker-friendly. They weren't uh, there's a lot of collateral damage. So what we're seeing now is hitting that sweet spot, providing to the restoration marketplace of all the various trades, hydrogen peroxide products that are pH balanced, that are effective, that provide that effervescence through superior chemistry. Uh, these products don't come with the baggage of some of the products that were out there previously. As you can tell, it's a favorite subject of mine. Okay, is because it is. I we can talk about it a little bit longer. Uh, you know, would you agree that um, hydrogen peroxide can be an excellent antimicrobial? I have. Our company does not currently manufacture an EPA registered or antimicrobial hydrogen peroxide. There well, I, are I, products I, I, out there no, in the marketplace. I, I understand. However. You know, the question was, um, you know, would you agree that hydrogen peroxide products 
are registered with antimicrobial claims. Absolutely there. I just uh, had the infection control conference in June and the healthcare engineering conference uh, just last week. Uh, both were in San Antonio, Texas, and there were a range of EPA-registered products that utilized hydrogen peroxide uh, as their active ingredient. That's uh, certainly something FiberLock is looking into now, and uh, it looks like there's a lot of products with some really interesting claims, and probably a lot more to come. You know, it's, it's interesting to watch what EPA is going through with the design for the environment process, so known as DFE. Um, right now, uh, if I'm correct in where things stand, uh, the evaluation process uh, currently looks at three active ingredient types, which the DFE study or the DFE team has designated as likely to be acceptable uh, should we ever get to a point where EPA is willing to confer that uh, status on a antimicrobial product. And those ingredients are lactic acid, citric acid, and hydrogen peroxide. The quats have been eliminated, the phenols have been eliminated, bleach has been eliminated. Uh, lactic acid, citric acid, and hydrogen peroxide are, are the three active ingredients sort of still in the running. Well, I, I guess what I was trying to get at, Cole, is that, you know, I think if I was going to ask you, uh, you know, to tell the truth, uh, when we use these peroxide cleaning products on living microorganisms, you know, would you agree that uh, there's going to be a reduction in the amount of living antimicrobial or living microbial organisms after you've applied one of these hydrogen peroxide cleaning agents to that surface? Well, to speak the truth, here's the <laughs> dilemma. Because it's the old A plus B equals C. Uh, and we have to try and be as responsible in, in answering that question. And it's a common question. Is hydrogen peroxide we know is a germicide. That's why it's in our medicine cabinet at home. Right. Um, we also know, of course, that, you know, cleaning and removing microorganisms, you know, that's the fundamental action that needs to take place to reduce microorganism activity. Um, what an EPA-registered manufacturer of products is not supposed to do, or what a manufacturer of a product that incorporates an active ingredient that is not EPA-registered uh, as a product or doesn't make that claim, is we're not supposed to take that common-sense approach. We're not supposed to connect those dots. Um, we're supposed to speak to the EPA-registered products that have a documented kill claim and say, these are the products that kill. If we have a cleaning product, we really shouldn't say that it's going to kill, even if common sense might say, well, of course it does. Uh, that's, we have to be responsible and work within the parameters of the system that, or the system architecture that EPA has created. Well, you know, in terms of the system architecture that they've created, if my understanding, and I may be incorrect, is that if you know that your product is antimicrobial as part of, you know, the way that it works, the EPA wants you to register the product. 
you know, it's the same thing, you know, going back to the cleaning side of it, where the uh, NADCA document talks about cleaning products, talks about, you know, deodorizing products, talks about antimicrobial products. In certain situations, one product may be all of those. You know, for instance, a a you know a ammonium chloride product. You know, we know that they're that they're classified as surfactants, so they can clean, they can also deodorize, they can also be antimicrobial. However, we have to have a registered product, which you know we've proven for efficacy and proven uh, you know what its safety risks are in order to have it registered. So, you know, it, it sometimes seems that. You know, manufacturers end up with no choice but playing both sides because the government just doesn't get it right. You know, it's funny you should bring that up because that was something that came up in writing the NADCA position paper. Uh, One of the uh, contributions uh, offered by EPA, uh, and I can't quote the sentence uh, directly um, or uh, from memory, was a statement to the effect of, well, if a product isn't EPA registered, but contains an active ingredient widely understood or known or, or uh, considered by EPA to be antimicrobial in nature, right. then that product would have to be registered. And there was a lot of discussion among the group. And the sentence as submitted by EPA actually didn't, didn't make the final cut because when the group had questions for uh, the EPA representative, it seemed that it was unclear on EPA's end as, as to what they were trying to accomplish with that statement. Uh, so it fell by the wayside. Right. But, you know, it fell by the wayside in terms of going into the document. I'm not sure that it's fallen by the wayside in terms of their position as to which products should be registered and which products shouldn't be registered, uh, you know, when they contain an active ingredient which is, you know, which is registered or is known to be antimicrobial. So, I, you know, I think that there's a, I think there's a dilemma there as well. I, I agree there's a dilemma. And hopefully as the DFE program proceeds, as the ongoing conversations between EPA and ISSA proceed, uh, we'll see some clarification coming out of that. Hey, guys, we, we did have, uh, I contacted Tim. Tim's on the line waiting okay, for great. It's halftime, so let's go ahead and play our um, uh, thank our sponsors. And Cole, if you have to run, we understand. And I, I want to, before you do, I want to say thanks for joining us. It, it was a pleasure, guys. Cliff, it's great to thanks, talk to thanks. you again. Nice it's to been way to too long. Yeah. Um, and Joe, thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate it, and hopefully we can do this again soon. Okay. And if you can't stick around, we'd love to have you. So you know, we understand. That. I know you have an appointment, though. So thanks a lot, Cole. Right. Thanks, guys. Take care. All right, let's go to our halftime to thank our sponsors, and then we're going to bring Tim Riley on for the second half of the show. Tim is, uh, let me get this here, he's the founder of Crime and Death Scene Cleaning of Ipswich, Mass. Crime and Death Scene is an unusual company. Since 1998, they have specialized in the abatement of any type of biological or infectious hazards, like blood, other body fluids, tissues, feces, They have remediated situations ranging from anthrax bioterrorism in New York City to disinfecting properties afflicted with zoonotic diseases. Mr. Riley is a former high school teacher that also worked as an EMT 
After some disagreements with the high school principal he worked for, he decided to start the crime and death scene cleaning company, quickly got involved with the American Biorecovery Association, and he has uh, been a longtime member and served as an officer and instructor with the American Biorecovery Association. We'll be right back after our commercial break to talk to Tim Riley. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry. For fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing, learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. Uh, Let's see if we've got Tim Riley on the line. Hello, Tim. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Hey, we had Cole. He had to run. We wanted to get on to the crime scene. We're running a little behind. But uh, let me ask you a quick question on this. Uh, You're working on the IICRC S540 Standard and Reference Guide for Trauma and Crime Scene Biological and Infectious Hazard Cleanup. What a what a title, buddy! Uh, uh, I had I didn't contribute to the title. <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell us? Can you give us the shorthand? What what is it? Is it basically just crime scene and death scene, or is it a little more than that? Uh, right now, the concentration is going to be on uh, biohazards, bloodborne pathogens, and that. We're not going to get into hoarding, animal cleanup, urine stuff like that. 
Okay, good. We're going to stick to the basics then. All right. Well, let's let's go to the basics. What are the what are the basic keys to a proper biorecovery cleanup? Uh, well, there's the five requirements from OSHA that you have to have uh, trained personnel with their hepatitis B vaccinations. They have to have the right PPE. They have to have, um, you know, obviously a written uh, bloodborne pathogen plan for the company in a proper way to dispose of uh, any of the contaminated materials as medical waste. Unfortunately, a lot of people who attempt to clean up uh, might have the hepatitis B vaccination and some basic training, but uh, proper disposal is uh, sort of iffy, and many of them really don't have a, uh, a, a good company bloodborne pathogen plan. Uh, a lot of people get into it because they are, you know, they're already a custodial company or fire and restoration uh, company. And, um, you know, the fire and water companies generally do a very good job because they have uh, all the prior training and the right equipment. They may fall down on their, the disposal part of it, but Billy Joe Bob and his mop company very often uh, make it look good, but it's definitely not clean. You know, you bring up uh, other companies getting into the business. How How is, I mean, I'm it's kind of strange to ask, but how is business with respect to death scene and crime cleanup? Is it something that is growing, uh, and why would it be growing if it is? Well, the the crime rate's actually down, despite what you might see in the news. I mean, the, the horror in Aurora was an aberration. Uh, generally, crime rates are down, but the suicide rate is pretty steady because it's a mental illness thing. I, don't, I really don't see a connection to the economy in, in my area with it. Uh, probably 5% of my business is crime. Maybe 30% is suicides. Another 30% be decompositions and then pretty much everything else. There's more call for it because people are more aware of it and the years of work on the parts of the association like my association, the American Bio Recovery Association, there's a lot more awareness by property managers, boards of health, and uh, those folks that you really do need to have a properly trained company to do this right. And, you know, we I just want to mention for listeners that are, are looking for a little more on the subject because we're going to run low on time. We had Kent Berg from American Bio Recovery on well, three years ago, Cliff, maybe? Yeah, I think so, John. And uh, so that's an old show that people can always listen to later. And, and we'll, we go into more about what American Biorecovery Association is, et cetera. But, uh, Cliff, do you want to Yeah, I, no, I've got a couple questions. Uh, thanks for joining us, Tim. Uh, in order to bid one of these jobs, what do you consider? Uh, you know, what are some of the things that you would consider? Well, first off, um, when we go into the scene, uh, what, what's our access I mean, I work in a lot of urban areas where parking is the first problem. Uh, but, you know, what is our access? Uh, what what exactly happened? How big an area is it? I mean, is it, is it something confined to, say, a small bathroom, or is this a, uh, a gunshot suicide where many rooms are involved? And from there, we're going to work out, you know, our access, where we're going to do our setup, uh, where we're going to have our area for donning and doffing our, our, our PPE with our walk-off area, and then we, how are we going to actually approach uh, the, the actual cleanup. And part of that estimate is how many boxes of medical waste, 
do we need to set up air cleaners or air movers? Do we have to do a, you know, change the environment? You know, is it, you know, get some air moving in there or get air conditioning in there? Safety reasons, do we need to hire a police officer to uh, grant us security in some of these areas? Things like that. Um, okay. What about, what's, you know, I know that the, the odor has got to be tremendous that you run into. What types of odor removal systems or types of products uh, have you found most effective for this? Oh, the number one method of odor control, obviously, is removing the source of the odor. Uh, but while we're doing that, while we're doing the actual removal or cleaning, uh, we're very, very often we'll have a hydroxyl ion generator running. Uh, that way, you know, we can be working in that space. And not always, but many times we'll actually have a air cleaner set up uh, with a activated charcoal filter or a potassium permanganate filter. And then when we're not in that space, uh, we'll use the ozone generator. Prior to working, we'll often spray with uh, a product like uh, oh, Microban uh, as an initial odor knockdown, bacteria knockdown. And once all the contamination is gone, uh, most of the time for a trauma cleaning, there's no real odor control that's necessary to be done because we've gotten it all. But for a decomposition, uh, we'll leave the ozone generator running and you know, uh, do another spray, you know, of uh, microban or, uh, you know, shockwave type thing to kill any bacteria that are left. You know, you mentioned source, removing the source, and I'm curious how far, you know, I, I obviously this will vary, but how far do you have to go with respect to, you know, removing flooring or, or removing walls, uh, you know, can you typically just wipe this off um, if you have the right cleaning products, or do you have to really get into um, a lot of, you know, cutting and, and removal of materials? Well, it, it depends on what the material is. Obviously, if we have a nice, intact uh, sheet vinyl floor, uh, that can be cleaned and we don't have to remove anything. But the job we're involved in now, and the reason why I was late to the call-in, thank you, uh, is we're involved in one right now where there's a seven-day decomposition, and we've had to remove an 8 by 10 section of the oak strip flooring, and they, underneath that there's two levels of one-inch pine uh, planking because the place is an uh, apartment building converted from an old factory, and we've got a 6 by 10 hole through both of those floors, and now we're making arrangements to remove the ceiling in the apartment down below because all the, the fluid is dripped on through, and we actually uh, may actually have to remove part of a wall as well. So it can range from very little quick and easy to uh, we've got five days invested in this job so far. Tim, what sort of guarantees um, do clients expect you to provide on one of these products? I mean, do they expect uh, a guarantee in writing that um, the odor is going to be removed? Uh, you know, what about surface decomp? you know, decontamination, you know, do they require some sort of testing afterwards to ensure that uh, blood-borne pathogens are absent, anything like that? Um, very rarely do we actually have anybody ask for a guarantee, and the times that we do is usually uh, someplace like a, um, a medical care facility or child care facility. Most people are simply happy that 
It's visually clean and smells good. Okay. Uh, we can give them a, a test. We use a Hygienia ATP tester. There's other ones too, Bio, BioSure, BioSafe. But we actually test for the presence of bacteria through their ATP. And um, many companies don't do that because it's not a requirement yet. But we can actually give them an actual measurement of what's left on that surface. I'm curious now. We're talking about the actual you know, the, the byproducts of the body, but then I don't think a lot of people realize there are a lot of other things that could be there with respect to things used for assisting the police and and the detectives in determining what happened at some of these crime scenes. And and as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, some of these like the fingerprint and so on can be even more difficult. To clean than, than the bodily fluids. Absolutely. The uh, bodily fluids are organic and uh, we can clean them from a non porous surface. However, the blood detecting chemicals and the generic name for those is luminol, but there's about a dozen of them. Those are stains. And we've, we've actually talked to the chemists that make them and asked them what solvents they use. And, their answer is, if you find one that works, please tell us, because everything we own is stained purple. Yeah. Interesting. What about fingerprints and uh, things like that? What other, you know, t- you know what, let me ask you a specific one, tear gas. And I know there's several different types, but, um, you know, on occasion you'll have someone that has to be uh, removed or they want to try and force them out of a building. What, what do you do with respect to tear gas? I don't have a whole lot of experience with tear gas because in New England uh, they don't use it very often. Uh, pepper is the is preferred, but tear gas is a, a detailed wipe down of all non-porous surfaces, basically using a hydrogen peroxide and baking soda solution. And the soft goods very often can't be uh, really remediated. Uh, for pepper spray or the the pepper bombs. It's a really good uh, a stiff HEPA vacuuming of everything, uh, which generally does a pretty good job on that. But if you've got a situation where, you know, the, the police put 20 canisters of tear gas into a double wide, uh, it's pretty much trashed everything because it's all forced in, into factory the walls and floors and everything to the point where you might as well just uh, crush the thing. Cliff, do you want to? Ask another question or go to the roundup? No, I think we can go to roundup, Chuck. Okay, Tim, what we do at this point is we, we go to a roundup and we're going to bring our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, in and we're going to go around and ask one final question. We may run over by a couple minutes. Do you have to run? Uh, no, I don't. Great, thank you. Move them on, hit them up, hit them up, move them on, move them on, hit them up, go high. All right, let's get Dr. Wild. I hope you got to unmute Dr. Wild there. Yeah, well, there is Beethoven again. I hope he was listening. 
Oh, yeah. It's a whole new system. Highly unlikely, but... <laughs> he's rolling over, Dieter. I yeah. hope so. Well, no, he shouldn't. He just should smile. Right. All right. All right. Dieter, anything you'd like to add? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, I don't know whether Cole is still listening. Good afternoon, Cole. He's gone, actually. But I should he's gone, yeah. I haven't I haven't seen him. in. Se- I mean, I know him for, what, 10 years or so, and I haven't seen him in quite some time. Anyway, I don't think I know Tim personally. We have not had the pleasure. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. Next time. <laughs> anyway, I made a couple of notes over here. If you want to kill moles and bacteria, whiskey, gin, and vodka, is it's going to work beautifully for you. There's no doubt about it. Most people don't know that. And if you look at the active ingredients of some of uh, uh, the, 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 the pesticides you are buying, you all of a sudden will find out, my God, there's 50% alcohol in there. I personally think it's a waste of good alcohol, particularly if it's ethyl alcohol. But that is all right. Mm-hmm. I made another note that coal, uh, uh, no, that was the... Um, the uh, trivia question from uh, uh, last week, of course, I knew the answer. Would you believe this is what happens when you have old people on your show? Would you believe that I wrote one of the first material safety data sheets in the country? What was it for, Dieter? Um, that was for an, uh, 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 a chemical made by the Bayer, today Bayer at the time, Mobay Chemical Corporation, uh, for isocyanates. Right. Isocyanate is one of the components uh, to make foam. Okay. Whether it's hard foam or the foam you are sitting on. I'm sitting on foam right now. All so right. that is, that's what it was for. This was 1973 or thereabouts, just when OSHA came out with... Yeah, uh, requirements to make material safety data sheets. And unfortunately, today I have a problem with them because they are now there when I was there and I wrote them for the worker. Today they are written by lawyers for lawyers. So the guy for whom it really was can't understand it anymore. That is the problem. I told them what to do and what not to do. But anyway, uh, I certainly cannot, and I will not change it. Uh, I'm at the age where I don't give a damn anymore. (laughs) But uh, another thing, and Cole mentioned that, there is Tracy by the EPA. She got to be one of the most helpful persons at the EPA. You call her, she answers her telephone. It's, it's, It's a miracle. It is unbelievable, and she gives you the right information. I talked to her the last time, three years ago or something like that, and she picked up that. That's fine. Cole also mentioned, and Cliff mentioned, uh, 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 well, call them pesticides or whatever you want to. I was once a proud owner of a one-quart bottle of Durstban made by Dow Chemical. Uh, they don't make it anymore, unfortunately. And I ran out of it. 
and I know how to make a 0.25% solution. I don't know whether <laughs> everybody else knows how to do it, but I know how to do that. And I used it in my house, and I got rid of all little critters with six or eight legs. Uh, I didn't kill my cats with it. I don't have any children, so I think they would have survived it too. I'm sure. Too. I certainly. But um, so th 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 those were my, my 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 comments over here. I have Tracy from EPA. I got the whiskey and gin and the Durstman and the MSDS. And uh, like Tim, I mean, what Tim is talking about, I'm not good at that. I have no experience with that. I certainly know it's, uh, how should we call it? It's a dirty job. And needless to say, uh, uh, necessary. I hope when I die, somebody will find me uh, half an hour later and get rid of the body. Uh, other than, you know, two weeks later, that would be terrible. I guess those are the tough ones, huh, Tim, where, you know, the body's been decomposing for quite a while, and uh, that would really seem like a tougher job. It, it's a lot more extensive, that's for sure. Uh, a lot more profitable, but a lot more extensive. Yeah, um, yeah well, I, uh, I I know that, and there are, I know, for, yeah, forensic people who look at that, and on the other hand, if you die on the outside in Arizona, you kind of are gone within about two days without anything because you dried up and you are, what, our body is what, something like 90 or more percent uh, uh, water? Yeah. Uh, that goes in a hurry and you don't, de once the water is gone, you, de you don't decompose anymore. No, it's, uh, you are pretty well mummified. Yep. You know, Cliff, do you have anything you want to I, I do, just a short, you know, just one short question. Tim, have you found any good source for labor, you know, for this type of work? Do you use part-time EMTs or part-time firemen or anyone like that uh, to help uh, you? I never interview firemen anymore because they all want to start their own companies because they work 70, you know, 24 on, 72 off, so they're all competition. Okay. Uh, Basically, most of my uh, referrals uh, have come from my present employees. Okay. Uh, that's the best word of mouth uh, because by the time the person comes in, they've already been sort of pre-vetted. Interesting. Now, I just have a text here, Tim, and I, I know you covered this briefly. I'd just like to go back. With respect to when you're done on, on some of these maybe higher-profile jobs, I know you use the um, ATP, which is kind of testing for a the component of biological organisms at the end. Have you had any other projects where you had to have some kind of post-remediation verification by a, a third party? Uh, once, and I, we hired an a, uh, a industrial hygienist who came in and did, you know, basically swabbing himself uh, on various areas and sent it off to an independent lab. Okay. And that was a, a child care center. Oh, okay. I see. Is there a specific organism that they look for, Tim? Do you know? No, they were just looking for um, on this particular one that uh, one of the uh, kids had uh, MRSA, MRSA, methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Gotcha. And so it was just it was a very high end child care center, and uh, they just were you know wanted to be super cautious. Gotcha.
Now, before we go, Tim, I'd like, you know, you, you've been doing this for a long time. You were an EMT before that. Any interesting projects or, or situations you'd, you'd like to relate to our listeners? Uh, the anthrax one was interesting on ABC News. Uh, yeah. We would never do it the same way again. Uh, but other things we've had, we've had anything from, you know, industrial accidents where the person's arm became part of uh, literally a ton of plastic pellets, mm. uh, and it all, that was about that was an interesting job. What happened with the anthrax? I didn't know they had anthrax scares in. Um, you were up, was this in the Boston area or in the? No, uh, Ron Gospodarski from uh, the Biorecovery Corporation in New York City had several other ABRA members come down there to help him when ABC News was attacked. Okay. He had companies from Ohio, Florida, uh, Jersey, and New York, and Massachusetts working there. I see. And so you were helping with the cleanup there at ABC. And, and do you have a quick anecdote from that one? Yeah. Um, ABC didn't see any particularly good reason to provide any of their people with PPE. So we're all marching around in, you know, full level C, uh, you know, masks and respirators and full suits and everything, and their people are walking through completely unprotected. Wow. Well, anybody injured on that one? I can't remember if ABC had any... Well, uh, um, a small boy was crawling around mom's office and got it on his hand. He had cutaneous anthrax, and that's how it was discovered. ABC News didn't know they had been attacked until this little kid popped positive for the sore. Oh, okay. Interesting. Cliff, anything you wanted to add before no, I'm we done, go? thanks. All right, Tim, before we go, we always like to give our, our guests the final word. Is there anything you'd like to add that... Uh, you know, maybe we missed, or that uh, you just all the listeners would be, you know, be important for listeners to hear. Well, any, if any of the listeners are thinking of expanding their service base, I would ask them to uh, get trained before they go out and do it, because the consequences of getting infect, infected with some of these things are uh, literally could kill you. Uh, so, if you're going to go into biorecovery, get trained first. Has there been that you're aware of any instances of people who have ended up being infected as a result of doing this improperly? Uh, not of a member of the of ABRA. I wouldn't know about any people otherwise. Uh, yes. I know that several, uh, some people have had to leave the industry for a psychological upset. I can imagine. I can imagine that would be a, a tough job. And we, you know, we appreciate those of you that, are out there doing it because um, I know I couldn't do it. Cliff, were you ever involved in that business? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I have the perfect personality for it. <laughs> no, no, really. I mean, when I was in the military, uh, you know, they give you all these psychological tests, and they tested me, and they told me that I had this ideal personality for that, and they wanted me to be an embalmer and deal with graves, uh, you know, registration and that sort of thing, and I, I just didn't want to do it. And then, you know, certainly in our restoration company i did many of them and i found that it really didn't bother me you know um, the blood doesn't bother me and you know it's uh, the only time i i really found that upsetting was with kids you know young absolutely wow that's got to be tough well i can't even change a baby's diaper so you guys know where i'm at on that one 
Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah we call you a wuss, Joe. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> well, listen, gentlemen, first I want to thank Cole Stanton. Uh, great job, Cole. And, of course, Tim Riley. Thanks for joining us, Tim. I hope we can get you back sometime. We can talk a little bit more about death scene cleaning and crime scene cleaning. And, uh, and we appreciate you joining us for Mass. And I know you're in the middle of a tough job there. And uh, we appreciate you taking time out. You're quite welcome. Look forward to the next time. Take care. All right. Thank you. All right. Before we go, I also want to make sure I thank the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Another another week. It's kind of different being up here, Cliff. Yeah, that's cool. But uh, it's all good. We'll, we'll get back down there sometime and do do a reunion tour. Huh, Val? Um, Roxy V, Val Bender at the controls, but most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Look, next week, we're going to have... Carl Grimes has been a guest a few times, and Don Weeks, who's also been a guest, but they're coming on together. They're just back from Australia, the most recent International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate Conference. We'll get all the uh, scoop on the most recent information available worldwide on indoor air quality and climate issues. So please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.